All right, before we get into the podcast, I want to let you know that while I was recording this, I, I spent almost two hours just talking, just spitting my opinion about this type of about this subject. So what I decided to do is I'm actually going to break this into two parts. So right now you're going to see part one. On Thursday, I'll drop part two of the podcast. So with that being said, make sure you're subscribed on YouTube or on pod, uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Go find Wake the Monster on all three of those channels. Make sure you're subscribed so that you don't miss part two when it drops on Thursday. So remember, 9 o'clock on Thursday will be part two of this episode. What's up, monsters? Welcome back to the Wake the Monster podcast. I'm your host, TJ, and today we're going to be talking about self-defense, kind of breaking down the self-defense industry, martial arts schools, traditional martial arts schools, MMA schools, that kind of stuff, and we're going to be talking about the good and bad about it. Um, I, it's, a, it's a world that I've been involved in for a very long time, and I have a lot of thoughts on some of the pros and a lot of the cons that come with this industry. Right off the bat, I don't want to do a long thing about this is who I am and this is my credibility because when you think about people that talk from positions of credibility and they want to tell you about all the stuff that they've done and all the reasons you should listen to them, that's really creates a argument from a position of authority, which I think is the weakest argument that you can have. Uh, too often today we see a person that has... Uh, an abbreviation at the end of their name and think that there's somebody that should be listened to because they went to school and got these MD, JD, something at the end of their name. And really, they're just a fool. They're just a moron, just like the rest of us. You know, uh, politicians, celebrities, athletes, all this kind of like my last podcast where I was talking about just because you're an athlete or just because you're famous doesn't mean that you're smart. It doesn't mean that you're credible in what you're talking about. I don't want to spend a lot of time on what my qualifications are because I want you to hear my words and I want you to critically think about these aspects as well, because I'm not the end of information here. I, I am this podcast, the Wake the Monster podcast, I'm, I'm hoping is the start of information for my listeners, for the people who are watching on YouTube. You shouldn't take what I say and just say, this is gospel, this is it. He said it, follow the monster, let's go. You know, I want you to think about what I say and, and do additional research, go find the avenues that I'm presenting to you and see if there's something that makes sense to you. And if they're not, come back and tell me. And then we can create a conversation around that too. All right, so with that being said, let's get into it. So my experience, I've trained martial arts for 25 years. I, I've taught for a lot of those years, but I started when I was a kid, right? My, like I started taking martial arts when I was 11 years old. I'm gonna be 36 this year. So it's been a long time. You know, in that in those 25 years, I've, I've kind of been around the block with everything. I, I've, I started in traditional schools. I went to MMA schools. I went to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for a little while. I had a good friend of mine was training me in Muay Thai, and I took a couple amateur kickboxing matches. And then being in the military, I, I became a, a level one combatives instructor. So I went through some of the military combatives programs too. In that time, there's been a lot of positive and negative. There's, there's so much positive to t training martial arts no matter what your reason for it is. My primary reason for training martial arts has always been self-defense and protection. I shouldn't say always. When I was younger, it was martial arts is cool. I, I loved 
WMAC Masters. For those of you who are big martial arts fans, you'll probably remember WMAC Masters. You know, I loved Cobra Kai, or uh, Cobra Kai's current. I love Cobra Kai currently. The Karate Kid, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Double Dragons, like that whole world was awesome to me. So when I was a kid, martial arts was fun. Doing all the crazy kicks, doing the tricks, the flips, all that kind of stuff was stuff that I enjoyed. You know, as I became older, as I became an adult, joined the military, got married, became a father, became a lot more about defense and protection and testing all of the training and experiences that I learned in theoretical environments and trying to test them in the real world to see if they actually apply and would actually benefit me in defending and protecting my life, my wife and my daughter and, you know, our, our home and our livelihood. So I've kind of gone the spectrum of martial arts, started off fun, kicking, all that kind of stuff, and then grew into kind of the, the rudimentary or the, the, the basic concept of martial arts, which is proficiency in violence. And with that came a whole new lens of what training in martial arts is, what it should be, what a good instructor is, what a quality instructor is, what a quality school is and is not. And so with that, one of the biggest things that came out of it for me was the concept of how actual self-defense is taught, how it's trained, how it's utilized by schools. And all schools have to water down technique at some point because every technique, every shot you throw, every punch or kick you take or make is is there with the intent to do significant damage, right? When we go full speed, the, uh, the concept is I'm trying to do significant damage to the person I'm throwing this to. So even if we're saying, hey, half speed sparring, light sparring, big padded sparring in MMA schools, right? You still, you're still removing the concept of I want to do extreme damage because this is your teammate. In traditional schools, or in schools that, that, that gear themselves towards children or towards practitioners who, who aren't focused on being extremely proficient in violence or competing in violence, it's watered down even farther because, you know, if somebody gets a bruise on their leg, they might be out of training for a week just because their mindset, their mentality is not about that same kind of toughness and grit. Maybe they're, they're in martial arts for spiritual awakening or for just being healthy and in shape and losing some weight. So different schools can serve different roles. The problem is that a lot of times the schools don't really pigeonhole themselves into those roles. They try and be an all-encompassing school and they actually do a discredit to a lot of their members or to a lot of their community when they do so. So I kind of want to focus this on self-defense. I don't want to get into the world of, of martial arts schools as a whole. Right, that because that world is just, you know, if you if you go on Instagram and you look at the Page McDojo life, yeah, McDojo life, the guy is always finding those touch kills and touch mar no touch kill, no touch martial arts. Those are all obviously fake. They're obviously cultish. They're obviously if the practitioner who is being beaten isn't in on the 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 gag, then they're weak-minded and they've they've basically been brainwashed. So those schools are the, the real obvious ones to see, but where do you find, how can you tell the difference between the schools where everything looks 
pretty normal. Everything looks everything looks like what I've seen on TV, right? So what's real and what's not? So that's what I want to kind of talk about. Like I said, most of my experience have been with traditional schools. So I've dabbled with MMA schools, jujitsu schools, things like that. But but primarily, it's been with traditional schools. I have a fourth degree black belt in Tung Sudo. I have a black belt in Chinese Kempo, you know, and and certifications in a few other styles. But I'm going to be heavily focused on on that traditional aspect. And I think that's important because those are the schools that are primarily out there saying, hey, here's a women's self-defense seminar or or focusing on the kids. And that's the, the majority of their student body, right? So I want the parents to be able to see this. And I also want the 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 community to kind of be aware. So you got the difference between traditional and then BJJ and MMA schools. So a traditional school is primarily going to be focused on bringing in a, a student body, like I have already said. They're going to be primarily focused on bringing children in as their main student. Um, you know, in the 70s and 80s, when karate was big, when, when martial arts was really coming to America, it was a very 80-20 split of 80% adults, primarily men, and then 20% kind of children and women. And back then, the training was very aggressive. It was very hard. It was very strong. It was very traditional in the aspect of traditional from Japan and China and the Asian countries where training was tough, training was hard, training was borderline abusive or even abusive in some aspects. And because the culture from those countries was to train that way, when those instructors came over to America, started on the West Coast and then branched over into the East Coast across the country, it became... You know, that was still the style. That was still the way it was taught. You had Koreans or, or the Japanese or the Chinese coming over and teaching in their traditional way, and they were teaching Americans. And then Americans who became proficient and became instructors were also teaching that way. But then in the 80s and the early 90s, you had this shift because you had the Karate Kid, you had the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies come out, and, and that attracted a much younger audience. And so what happened was there was a big shift, there was a big conversion, and really it went from 80-20 adults to children, and it inverted, and it became 80% children wanting to take martial arts because it kind of started being marketed to them in in uh, pop culture. And then 20% were the adults and the grown-ups. So because of that, you had to change the way you taught. You had to change the way you delivered the instruction. I can't teach an adult. I can't kick an adult the same way I'm going to kick a five-year-old, right? In the 70s or the 80s, when it was mostly adults, the instructor could hit you hard because that's just training. We're just learning how to, we're conditioning our bodies, right? Today, I can't condition a five-year-old the way I conditioned a grown man in the 80s. It doesn't make sense. Even when I teach adult classes, I can't condition them the way my instructors were conditioned, right? It doesn't work that way anymore. I won't have that student tomorrow if I were to treat them the same way that martial arts students were treated back then. So it's all watered down as we've come through. Now, when you get to BJJ and MMA schools, it's different because they've been able to market themselves in a different way. They've been able to market themselves as a competition type environment, as a, a much more realistic scenario, right? So you see the UFC, Bellator, one championship, all that kind of stuff. That's full contact. We are actually going out to knock each other out. We are actually going out to compete in just as boxing or, or any other combat sport. We are looking to do damage and to cause pain and to win a fight by knockout or submission. So BJJ and MMA schools 
are much more capable of doing things like that. But they still put protections in there, right? They still have, if we're sparring, we're going to use 16-ounce gloves. That way they're nice and big. We're still going to have shin pads on when we're kicking each other in class because, yeah, we want to condition ourselves to be able to take pain and deal with it and keep moving forward. But also, we do want you to come back tomorrow and continue to, to train. So there's still balance in that. So with that being said, what are my problems with self-defense classes? We want to focus on the self-defense aspect. So right off the bat, you need to think about self-defense as consistency being the key to being capable. Consistency is the key to capability. Because of that, most traditional schools have a two classes a week minimum type scenario, right? So you sign up for a contract or an agreement, whatever the school is doing for you, and they can say you can come twice a week or you can come as many times as a week, but you know normally you get two workouts in a week with the school, and that's sufficient two one-hour workouts or two 45-minute workouts, depending on what it is, you're not going to get self-defense the whole time. You're going to get a blend of what they do, especially in a traditional school, because you're going to get kata or hyung or forms or weapons or one-step, you know, some you're sparring. You're going to get a whole bunch of other stuff along with the self-defense techniques that are in there. They're just kind of like sprinkled in. They are a secondary skill as opposed to a primary skill. So because of that, the consistency for the skills doesn't exist. So if you've ever heard the phrase, you knew just enough to be dangerous, right? Or the person knew just enough to be dangerous. That normally means dangerous to themselves, right? I had just enough knowledge of a thing to be dangerous to myself. That's the same thing when it comes to self-defense. If I'm only training self-defense skills, if I'm only training how to escape a, a choke or a front headlock or a, or a lapel grab or something along those lines, if I'm only training that, maybe 15 minutes a week because of the way a class is structured, then I, I know just enough to be dangerous to myself. That means that if somebody comes up to attack me and I try to defend myself that way, I'm most likely going to have several factors that are going to make it very difficult for me to be able to use the technique correctly. In which case, I'm angering the attacker even more and most likely I'm going to force myself into a position where I'm doing, I'm receiving more damage than I would have if I had just given the wallet or something like that, right? Now, that's something that we do talk about a lot in self-defense classes is like, listen, if you can be compliant, be compliant, right? You only use this if it's a life or death type situation, which is okay. But at the same time, like, you don't want to lose the money in your wallet or your cards, or your ID or keys or car or anything like that. But most importantly, you don't want to lose your life. So that right off the bat is a first problem is that you just you're not getting consistency of self-defense techniques. All right. Secondly, let's think about seminars. Right. This is something that that schools do a lot. They do self-defense seminars or really they they hyper focus on women's self-defense seminars. The concept there is that, hey, women, you are generally you are physically not as strong as men. Right. So we're going to give you these special seminars to give you the technique so that you can defend yourself if you are attacked by a man. Women generally have less strength overall than men. Okay, now you need to take into account what is most likely the scenario when you're being attacked. Attackers, you can you can assume that they are not in a well state of mind right? Because people in well states of mind aren't out there just randomly attacking people and robbing people, right? With that being in, a, in not a well state of mind, you can also tend to presume that they are going to be on some sort of 
substance, right? Mind-altering substance, drug. With that, a lot of times, and police officers and people that are interact with the community in that way are going to be able to tell you that if somebody is on drugs, their pain tolerance or their ability to respond to to pain and to, to aggression like that is going to be much different. They're much harder to subdue, right? You'll see people on drugs that are able to walk right through 20,000 volts from a taser, and then the cop has to move to some form, other form of non-lethal or lethal, right? So not only are we thinking about self-defense from the concept of, hey, women, you need to have good technique. We want to give you these techniques to be able to defend yourself against a stronger man. But at the same time, you also then need to think about the fact that that stronger man is most likely on a substance, which is going to make them even stronger, right? Now, remember, my whole premise here is that these self-defense seminars are actually dangerous for society. They're dangerous for people to be just out there teaching all willy-nilly without some very core components involved in them. So I think women's self-defense seminars are even more dangerous because I think they're they're irresponsible. I think women's self-defense seminars and, and, and self-defense seminars at large are very irresponsible of instructors to be delivering. And that's coming from somebody who who has done many of them in my in my last 25 years right i've i've been a part of and i've taught and, and delivered many self-defense seminars women's self-defense seminars and I, I i do think after my my experiences of doing that i think it's very irresponsible to do and so i i don't partake in that type of stuff and i don't encourage people to attend those types of things without very specific criteria being involved seminars self-defense that kind of stuff they're used more as a recruitment tool if you look at the majority of schools when they host a women's self-defense seminar, something that you're going to get when you leave is a card, right? Now, as a business, right, martial arts schools are businesses, so they should have recruitment tools in place. But as the consumer of a self-defense seminar, you need to understand that they are using that seminar to try and increase their student body. They're trying to increase their active enrollment because they're trying to make more money because they are a business, right? It makes sense. But you need to understand that. The Women's Self-Defense Seminar's primary focus is to grow the student body. It is not, even the most well-intentioned instructor should understand that, hey, these skills, they should end the seminar saying, hey, these skills that I taught you today are absolutely useless unless you practice and practice and practice and practice and practice every single day for the rest of your life. It is a diminishing skill if you are not constantly practicing these skills, Okay. So that's a very important aspect to consider. If you go to a woman's self-defense or you go to a self-defense seminar, you get to the end and the instructor doesn't say, hey, these are absolutely useless unless you practice every single day, then it was an entire waste of your time because that instructor was there just to try and recruit you instead of actually make you more effective, make you more secure. Another aspect of the self-defense or self-defense skills as they are taught is that they're not realistic. So the U.S. Marshal Service did a study about the totality of self-defense interactions. They looked at security footage. They looked at police reports. They looked at, you know, civilian recorded on cell phone interactions and self-defense, street fights, world star hip-hop. That all They went the, the full gamut of wherever they could find self-defense occurring or violence occurring. And they broke down how it started, who was the aggressor? What kind of positions were they in? What kind of factors contributed to the violence escalating, or or, or to the interaction escalating to violence? You know, and some of the things that that they talk about is most people are, are framing, right? So in 
self-defense, normally if you go to a self-defense class, they're going to talk about a grab, a choke, a pull, something along those lines, right? But in reality, some of those work, some of those, some of those apply, if you think about it. But normally what happens is a frame. Majority of people are right-handed. So the most frequent, like 70% of physical violent interactions start with left hand framing from the attacker, right? So a left hand push or a left hand touch, right? Now, the reason for that is it's create space or, hey, we're starting this kind of thing. But if you think about it from a physiological aspect, if I try and it's easy for me to touch my hands together, right? I can touch my hands together behind my head. I can touch my hands together in front. I can touch my hands together if I'm closing my eyes. Do the same thing back here, right? No matter where, I can I can touch my hands, right? I can, I'm always going to hit because of the fact that I have a mind-body connection. And that's why I can make that contact. So the same thing applies when you get into a self-defense situation. If I want to post, I want to figure out how to hit you or how far away I need to be, but I don't want to get hit first, I'm going to post with my offhand. And that will let me know the distance to be able to use my other hand. So that that's a, a subconscious physiological aspect to self-defense or to an attacker. Some of the other reasons are because of shielding too, right? So now let's escalate it from not just hand-to-hand, but let's say the attacker has a knife. Well, the attacker wants to shield that knife. So they're going to post with one hand to shield and attack with the other arm, right? Those are the kind of things that don't get included in a lot of basic self-defense classes because those classes come from techniques that were developed through traditional martial arts. So they don't think about the current real world scenario of violence. They think about violence in a philosophical or theoretical aspect. Because of that, many of the self-defense techniques that we utilize today could be effective there's a chance, right? You, you hear success stories, but the chance of success is so low because there's no consistency in training and because we don't train you into a system to actually get to the technique, right? So think about jujitsu, for, for example. Jiu-Jitsu teaches you submissions. They teach you how to do a triangle choke. They teach you how to do an armbar. They teach you how to do a headlock, guillotine, kimura, americana, whatever submission you think about. Right? They teach you the submission, which is great. But they are going to train you into a flow, into a series to get you to the submission. If I'm rolling with another jiu-jitsu practitioner, now I'm a white belt in jiu-jitsu, right? So by no means am I the professor that you need to listen to for technique advice, okay? But even if I'm rolling with another basic white belt, such as myself, if I go straight for a Kimura, they're going to see that coming. If I go straight for a guillotine, they're going to see that coming. It's going to be very difficult to defend against that thing. I need to have a series of techniques, a series of moves, setups that lead me to the finishing move. That doesn't happen in self-defense or knife defense in traditional martial arts schools. They don't have a series of moves to lead you to the finish. They just teach you one, two, three, that's the lock, right? Boom, boom, that's the lock, we're done. Outside leads, 
arm bars, all that kind of stuff. There is no series of moves to get you there. Right? They might teach you a counter off of a punch, block grab, that kind of stuff. But even those are relying on your reaction ability to sometimes catch a punch out of the air or catch the knife, right? And those techniques are impressive. They look cool, but their application is so minute in a realistic world. The techniques work on compliant and semi-compliant individuals. The techniques work once you get to a certain point in the technique, you could get non-compliant individuals to comply. Right, wrist locks, things like that, that all exists in jujitsu. Police officers utilize those techniques all the time once they get to a position to deliver it. But again, if you haven't trained a series of techniques to get there, then the technique that you learned in the self-defense seminar is absolutely useless to you. And if you are not training that technique, if you are not training that technique on a regular basis, it is even more useless to you because you know from the women's self-defense seminar you took, and then a mugger comes up and wants to take your purse. And then you have a flashback to that one moment. And it's like, oh, I know what I'm going to do. And then you do it, and all of a sudden you're stabbed, or you pissed off the attacker because you didn't train the technique consistently, so you weren't good at it. Now you pissed off the attacker, and now it went from taking your purse to taking you or taking your life or something along those lines, right? So that's the risk that comes with just having these women's self-defense seminars or self-defense classes or anything like that without having a true understanding of the spectrum of violence that exists in society, of what real-world self-defense actually is. It comes from ego in martial arts is, is through the roof, right? I was a victim of my own personal ego for a long period of time in martial arts. I thought that so much of what I knew was going to be transferable. I went out and did my first kickboxing fight. I trained for like 18 days. I took the fight on short notice, trained for 18 days, cut 24 pounds in that time, walked in. I was like, Psh, I'm fighting this dude who's a kid. I was older. I've been training longer than this kid's been alive. I'm a dust him. First round, I did okay, but I didn't know the game. So second round, I came out. I had nothing. And the kid put work on me and I ended up losing a second round TKO because of my ego, right? I had to go out and learn technique and then actually start developing myself as a, as a martial artist outside of theoretical aspects. The techniques aren't realistic when compared to an actual study of real world violence today, right? That's a, that's a thing to keep in mind today. Most of the time when you're actually in the training room, you are training with a compliant scenario. You're training with a partner who is going to allow you to get to the submission, allow you to get to the choke, allow you to get to the knockdown or the kick or the punch because they want to be a good teammate. They want to train the technique. They also don't want to receive the full amount of pain that that technique would actually deliver. Remember I said, if I'm giving full amounts of pain to my training partners or to my students in training, they're not going to stick around very long. I'm not going to have that training partner tomorrow. So we got to keep that in mind with these scenarios. We have to create a world where we can train real self-defense techniques and have our students come back tomorrow. And there needs to be a give and take with that. If you're going to take martial arts for the purpose of self-defense, remember, I'm going to get to later, there's many different ways to take martial, many different reasons to take martial arts. But if you're taking it for self-defense or learn to fight, learn to defend, all that kind of stuff, you need to be very comfortable 
with a certain level of pain that you're going to receive in every class. You're going to have black and blue marks all over you. You are going to get hit in the face. You are going to get smacked upside the head. You are going to have sore joints. All of those things are going to exist and you have to be willing to accept that or else you are not going to get the full benefit of training these techniques. And then when it comes time, God forbid that you actually have to use the techniques, you're not going to be capable. You're going to be missing key components. You're going to have a, there's an F3 response, right? So I, I read this book called Bullet, uh, Becoming Bulletproof today. And it was a, a lady named Ava. She was a Secret Service agent. Phenomenal book. Phenomenal. Absolutely recommend it. She talked about the F3 response in there, the Secret Service agents. So we all know fight or flight, but there really is a third option, which is freeze, right? Fight, flight, or freeze. And that happens. You see it when deers are crossing the road and they see the headlights. That's freeze. That's the third of the three Fs. That's F3, fight, flight, or freeze. If you haven't trained the skill well enough, you're going to freeze, right? Because where where flight might have been your default response, but I gave you some training, so now I built your confidence up. So you say you get into a scenario where you need to defend yourself, and you say, okay, cool, I learned these moves. I haven't practiced them, but I learned them. So now I, as the instructor, turned your flight, which would have been safe for you, into a fight response. So now you are going to stay engaged in the situation instead of looking for an escape route. But you are not competent enough in the technique your confidence is actual hubris because you learned a technique but you haven't repped it enough turned your flight into a fight and now once you realize in that scenario that you are no longer capable you're missing something you're missing a core component you're losing this fight that flight went to fight and now becomes freeze because now you have no clue what to do you're in a panic and all that's going to happen is you're going to take your beating or worse. So that's why when I say consistency is the most critical aspect. Learning self-defense is good. The techniques definitely need to be drastically improved in the majority of schools. But there is an individual component that is very primary to this. You must be willing to continuously practice. You must be willing to, to have the consistency of repetition to make this work. So one of the things that I would do as a martial arts instructor when, when I did teach self-defense, because there is a curriculum aspect in traditional schools that you have to think about, because self-defense or knife defense is, is built into many schools' uh, belt promotion program, black belt program, that kind of stuff. So the curriculum has to be taught, but we need to teach it in a way that I'm not putting students at risk, right? So me personally... I would always premise self-defense with certain concepts. One of them is a major lacking key component, situational awareness. Right? I remember the first time I mentioned situational awareness in a class, all the students looked at me like, I've never heard that term before. It's like, okay, cool. So teach an adult class. It's 9 o'clock at night when we're all going to walk out. How many cars were in the parking lot when you got here an hour ago? Uh, I don't know. How many stores are in the shopping center that are going to be open when we walk out of the parking lot tonight? Uh, I don't know. How many lights? Who parked under a streetlight? What's the weather going to be? Right. Where are we in comparison to where's the police station? Where's this? Where's the nearest prison? Right. These are questions that people can't answer 
commonly. That's all situational awareness type stuff. You walk out the door. Is there anything out of place? You come out of class three times a week at nine o'clock. How often is that person walking their dog when you come out of class? How often is that person standing out front of that building looking like they're waiting for a ride? Those are, these are all situational awareness type things. Now, there is a dichotomy to everything that we do. Situational awareness can be considered paranoia by some people, but in reality, the strongest self-defense skill you can have is being aware of your surroundings. That is number one before anything, because the best thing to do when a fight is going to occur is to flee. It don't matter who you are, the best thing you can do is find an escape route, not just for the sake of you preserving your own life, but if you're not versed on the self-defense laws of your township, county, state, if you're not well-versed in self-defense itself, if you don't have a full understanding of violence in the environment that you are specifically in, is it a stand-your-ground state? Right. This doesn't just deal with firearms. This is hand-to-hand self-defense as well. Is it a stand-your-ground state? Is it a castle state? Is it a duty-to-retreat state? Is there a mutual combat law? All those things play into what the aftermath is going to be. There's also a consideration of reputation protection. This is a big aspect when kids are getting into a fight in schools. Now, reputation protection is if I'm going to get into a fight with somebody, let's say I'm in high school and I'm going to fight somebody, I could beat the person down and leave them bloody in a field and walk away and my reputation is through the roof in high school, right? I'm the big bad dude who can win a fight. But I just destroyed the reputation of the other person. That does not end there because that person, everybody wants to have a good reputation. That person may decide that to gain their reputation back, they're going to escalate the violence against me. So the next time it's not hand to hand. The next time they want to fight me, they get two friends and they jump me with a baseball bat. All right. This has been a scenario that I've been involved in. I got into a conflict with somebody. We had an interaction that I was successful in, and I used to go skating every Friday night. Well, this person also went skating too, and it just so happened that him and his friends showed up, and they decided that they wanted to challenge me to a fight out behind the skating rink. Well, I fled that situation because I knew that they went out back and they prepared where we were going to fight first. The reputation of that person was harmed, so they had to escalate the violence. Now, what happens after that? Now, my reputation is harmed because I fled a fight, right? In high school, that's a big deal, right? I fled a fight, so my reputation is now harmed, and theirs is pumped up. So you're always playing this game of so many factors in violence, so many factors in self-defense, that the best opportunity, the best option is to avoid avoid situational awareness is avoiding conflict, avoiding fights, finding out where problem areas are and don't go near them, right? In 2020, there were riots and protests all across the country, right? Tim Kennedy is a Green Beret, Ranger, Sniper, UFC, Strike Force champion, world famous martial artist, very well versed in combat, has gone in and taken on some of the 
baddest people in the world and come out victorious. They asked him, hey, if you were in an area where a riot broke out, how would you handle those people? And he was like, I would never be there. I'm very well aware of what is happening in my environment, and I don't go to the areas where I know something is going to happen. He plans out what he's doing, where he's going, when he's going to be there. He looks at the maps. He looks at the research. He looks at the data. He looks at the trending on Twitter, and he finds out where he can and cannot be. That's situational awareness. That's what I'm talking about. Right? That's avoidance. And that's something that is not taught regularly in self-defense classes. And it should be. It's not something that we can spend 10 minutes on. Training situational awareness is something that should be full classes and seminars by themselves. When you go to your women's self-defense seminar and you have a conversation about situational awareness at the beginning, how in-depth did they just go? I mean, I've spent six minutes talking about it, and I haven't even scratched the surface on it. But to people who run these seminars, they want your excitement level high. They want the music on. They want you moving around. They want you working out. They want you sweating. They want you feeling good. They want endorphins so that at the end, they can hand you a card and say, hey, didn't you feel good being here? Why don't you sign up? And now they got you as a student. It's not glamorous to bring a bunch of people in to a room, sit them down, and say, today's seminar, we're going to talk for an hour, and we're going to take a test. But that's real self-defense. Situational awareness is the most prominent aspect of self-defense that you should be versed in. 